turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. As we head toward Easter, we are taking time each Sunday morning to look at some of these most well-known scenes from the final week and hours of Jesus' life and ministry. And we've examined the triumphal entry. We have looked at Jesus being anointed by Mary with perfume in preparation for his burial, this incredible act of worship and devotion. We have uh, seen Jesus uh, share in the Passover meal with his closest followers. Uh, We have seen Jesus uh, institute this new meal called communion, the Lord's Supper. We have seen Jesus go to the garden to pray and prepare himself uh, spiritually for what he was about to endure physically. And um, we continue today by looking at Jesus being betrayed, uh, denied by and abandoned by his disciples. And of course, we'll continue on through Easter Sunday with the resurrection Uh, But all of this begins today, this abandonment, betrayal, arrest, and denial of Jesus with this incredible conversation he had with his disciples uh, while they walk from the upper room to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. So they they share the Passover meal, he institutes the communion, the Lord's Supper, they finish it out, as we'll see with the hymn, and then they get up and leave, and they're walking to uh, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they have this conversation beginning in verse 26 of Matthew 14. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you would deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Father, we are grateful for your word. We confess our absolute dependency on your word, your spirit to do the work that we need in us. We cannot manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. It's your initiating sovereign decision to work in us and work through us. And so we plead with you, we ask you to come today and accomplish in us what you desire. And that we would see, we would hear, that we would believe in Jesus once again. Do all of these things for your glory alone. No man, no church deserves your glory, just you. And so get it today and as you work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had been a Christian for about three years when I came face to face with the reality of failure in the Christian life. Um, God graciously saved me in 1992 and my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian at that time from, from what I had kind of observed or, or loosely been taught. There was really no ongoing intentional discipling relationship like we were trying to do in the crossing with DNA groups or our missional communities. But what I had observed and learned was, was basically the Christian life was read your Bible, pray, go to church, serve in the local church, um, don't cuss, don't 
watch or listen to secular movies or music um, and, and stay away from people who, who drink or chew. Stay away from all of that. Just kind of go into your, your Christian huddle and stay with your Christian friends and, and, and every now and then share the gospel to somebody who needs Jesus. But if they don't respond with the gospel, then you really need to stay away from them because they're going to pull you down. And so that was my understanding of Christianity. And, and to some degree, with some degree of success and consistency, I had done that for like the first three years of my walk with Christ. And, and I got to the, the year 1995, and um, I, had, I realized that even though there had been some consistency in doing these things, my heart still desired sin. And at times, my heart would turn from Jesus to sin. And I hadn't seen as much transformation that I wanted to see. I didn't believe in sinless perfectionism, but I definitely wanted to see more of, of no, not desiring sin and less of desiring sin. And, and I got tired of doing all these things. And so for a season in that year, I just quit trying. I just quit doing all the things that I had been doing because I wasn't seeing as much fruit as I wanted to see. I was failing to be transformed. And... Uh, Quit engaging in the scriptures, quit praying, even skipped church on one Sunday night, went and played golf. Of course, I knocked it in from 75 yards out for a birdie, which figures, and you skip church to go play golf. But um, I was face-to-face with failures, but had no understanding of how I'm supposed to deal with the failures in my life as a Christian. Now, I knew that you don't get cozy with failure, you don't get cozy with sin and make it a friend. But how do you deal with failure? How do you get back up when you've either been knocked down or when you knock yourself down? How do, you, how do you allow your failures to define you or not define you? How do you see yourself in light of your failures? The disciples were about to have to learn this lesson in the hardest way. So Jesus finishes this meal with his disciples And he leaves with them, headed out to the Mount of Olives, and he drops this bombshell on them in verse 27. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. You guys are about to fail. You're about to fall away. It's an interesting word that Jesus uses because he speaks of of, of a lapse, not a rebellion. In other words... External factors are about to crush you and cause you to fall away. You're about to be crushed in the crucible of external pressure. You're not going to stand. You're going to fall. Not a defiant rebellion, but an internal weakness. Because as we would say, see, Jesus told them to, to, to watch yourselves, be on guard, persist, and they didn't. Because they didn't maintain the things Jesus told them to maintain when the pressure came... They were crushed. What would be the external pressure apply? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 27, the shepherd is going to be struck. Now, this is in accordance to Scripture. What Scripture? Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, that verse in Zechariah 13 says... Strike the shepherd. Jesus in verse 27 says, I will strike the shepherd. Jesus adds the first person singular to this. I will strike the shepherd. Again, Jesus understands that the coming crushing and striking that he is going to endure will be at the hands of the Lord. 
He's not caught up in some political power play with the Jews and Romans and circumstances are outside of his control. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, this plan for sinless Jesus to die at the hands of sinful men is preordained by God. And we'll get into this later, but it's becoming more and more popular to believe and express this view that Jesus is just caught up in the manipulations of man. That it wasn't really God's plan to strike him down. Prevalent in movies like The Shack. That for God to intentionally pour his wrath on his son on the cross is cruel and not like God. Except it is exactly like God to uphold his holiness, justice, and righteousness by condemning sin, punishing sin, even when that sin is laid on the shoulders of his own son. And Jesus gets this when he says, I will strike the shepherd. That's the first person singular. Who could he be referring to? Judas? Caiaphas? Pilate? Like there's no one person you can lay the crucifixion of Jesus before, lay at their feet. There's no one person who's responsible for it. So when Jesus says, first person, the singular, I will strike the shepherd, there's only one person who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus in the singular form, and that person is God. It is God's foreordained plan that he is about to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus asked this, verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now there's great hope and promise in that statement. We're going to come back to that later on. But because this is the fourth prediction of his resurrection along with chapters 8, 9, and 10, and the disciples never got it, they never understood. In fact, it always sent them into turmoil as it does here. They didn't understand it here, so we'll come back to it later on as well. Verse 29, Peter says to him, even though they will all fall away, I will not. Good old Peter. Let me with bravado and flash and, and arrogance not only boast about how I won't fall away, but let me throw all these other chumps under the bus. They may all fail you, but I won't because I'm Peter. I can't wait to meet this guy one day. Um, so Jesus responds as only Jesus can. Verse 30. Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three Times Okay, Peter, you're going to stand on the, the highest chair above all these inferior disciples. Then you're going to fall the hardest. You're going to raise yourself up the highest and you're going to fall the furthest. Very colorful language. Jesus emphatically shows Peter's going to fall and fall hard. Mark alone records the rooster crowing twice. In Jewish literature, the rooster's second crowing would come around 2 to 3 a.m., and the language of the Old Testament is emphatic that this is not a sudden slip, like Peter just all of a sudden denied Jesus, that it would be an intentional denial of Jesus. An emphatic denial of Jesus. Peter is undeterred, as only Peter would be undeterred. If I must die with you, emphatically, he says, I would not, not deny you. And, and notice the rest of the disciples join in. They all said the same. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're following our leader. We're not going to fall away. Jesus, you don't know us. We're going to pass a test. Jesus already knows his sacrifice would be for sinners, not just the sinners that he hasn't met, the sinners who are deplorable around the world, including us, but the sinners who had followed him closely for three years. Easy for them to say, when no swords are present, that we will not fail you, we will not die. 
We would rather die than fail you. But what happens when the swords show up? So they make it to the garden. As Kendrick walked us through skillfully last week, Jesus tells them to watch him pray. He prays. They fall asleep. This happens three times. So bold, so brave. These guys couldn't even stay awake. Couldn't even resist the temptation to fall asleep despite the pleas of Jesus to pray with him. And then suddenly the surrounding area is lit up with torches and the sound of clanging armor and swords as a cohort of soldiers arrive. Skip down to verse 43. And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So much for Judas being the victim of being, or, being, or getting carried away by some plan he couldn't control. What Jesus does here is in contrast to the disciples. The disciples had elapsed when external pressure was applied. What Judas is doing is planned, schemed, and defiant and rebellious. This is not pressure causing someone to fall away. This is someone scheming to cause pressure. And the way he does it is deplorable, with a kiss. Never recorded in the Gospels that anyone greeted Jesus with a kiss, not even the disciples. This mocking title of respect, Rabbi, Jesus is about to be mocked and ridiculed by soldiers, but his mocking and ridicule begins here with one of his closest 12 followers who had been with him for three years. It's bad enough that Judas would have to scheme against him to betray him, but to do it in such a mocking way. There's a fascinating detail that's not included in any of the Gospels except for John. John 18, 3 through 6, about this scene. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus says, I am he, literally in the Greek it reads, I am. That's all it says. Jesus clearly identifying himself as he would do on a few other occasions in the Gospel of John with the God of the Old Testament, who when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked him, what is your name? Who do I tell these Israelites who you are? What should I tell them? And and Yahweh God revealed his name, Yahweh, to Moses at that time in Exodus 3. I am that I am. God identifying himself as I am throughout Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Jesus comes, especially in the Gospel of John. John brings this out. Several occasions when Jesus refers to himself, he uses simply the word I 
am, a clear connection with the God of the Old Testament. And there is such power and authority and recognition of this divine revelation of Christ amongst these soldiers that for a second they do what everyone should have been doing throughout the Gospels. They fall down, prostrate, as though they involuntarily were responding how they knew they should have responded when they stood before God. Reminding them that even though they have the swords, he has the power. Interestingly, the disciples did not immediately fall away. At first, they strike back. One of them fought back with a sword. According to John 18.10, this one is Peter. Peter cuts off the ears of one of the servants. servants. Matthew identifies him as Malchus. And unless you think Peter is amazingly accurate with a sword, that he could swing a sword and knock off a guy's ear... Just to give him a warning shot, remember Peter is a fisherman. He's not a soldier. Peter's not intentionally trying to cut the guy's ear off. He's probably trying to take his head off and misses, as any good fisherman swinging a sword would do. Now, Mark doesn't record uh, Jesus' rebuke to Peter for attempting to bring about the kingdom of Jesus with a sword, nor does Mark record Jesus healing the servant's ear. That's all in Matthew and John. But he does record the rebuke of Jesus to the crowd And the guards in verses 48 through 49, where he says, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. I've been teaching you day after day in the temple, and you saw me there. And now you come out in the middle of the night and surprise me as though I were leading a group of guerrilla warfare rebels or a band of robbers or revolutionaries. Don't they know who he is? Haven't they listened to him? He has not come to enact a kingdom that will rule over people with power and a sword. He has come to bring about a kingdom that will transform people from the inside out. It's a kingdom, as Tim Keller says, that swords can't stop. What are you going to do with those swords? Do y'all know what kind of power I have? It's not earthly power. It's supernatural power. The world's kingdom operates with power, control, domination, money, coercion, the sword. Not Jesus' kingdom. It's not his way. Keller goes on to say this. All other revolutions are men, by men, are done by power. And so it's just new people with the same power. Just another group that still has power to rule over people. But Jesus' revolution is a new kind of power. The kind of power that doesn't need a sword and the kind of power that can't be stopped by a sword. At this point, Jesus is seized. And the disciples run. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So interesting detail with recording the streaker. A lot of conjecture about who this is. Why why did Mark include this? He's the only gospel writer who included this. I won't give you all the theories. There are a lot. But church tradition has long held that this is Mark. Or maybe someone prominent the early church knew. It's his way of saying, I also ran. I'm not innocent 
either. This is so bad we had to run, all of us, running away in shame and nakedness. Some also point to Amos 2.16, where it says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And in that day, context of Amos 2, is the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath is so bad that even mighty men will run away naked. And it is indeed God's wrath that is being poured out, but not on a nation or a people, but on His Son. Jesus is led away. He's brought to the home of Caiaphas, a high priest, a member of the Sanhedrin that authorized this illegal nighttime arrest He will immediately be put on trial. We'll walk through that passage next week. But outside his trial, down below in the courtyard, someone else is also about to be put on trial. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The common Jewish house slash compound would be a series of buildings and rooms that would form a square around a courtyard with a wall that would face the street. And in the courtyard, people would congregate, talk, eat, work, And on this cold spring night, they would be gathered around a fire. And Mark adds a detail, which again points to the reality that Peter is the source for the Gospel of Mark. Only one of the details that someone who was there would would realize that, that Peter was down below in the courtyard while Jesus was up high. Apparently, Jesus was in a second story room on trial before the the this illegal trial before the Jewish leaders, and down below in the courtyard was Peter, who no doubt wants to be hidden, but he also wants to stay warm. And he's a dude, and dudes flock to fires. Somebody lights a fire up, we're going to go stand around it. And in the flicker of that fire, his face is recognized by this young servant girl, or as John refers to her, this doorkeeper. And she puts forward an assertion, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denies it strongly. I don't even know or understand what you mean. There's two kinds of knowledges that he's using to deny Jesus. He's, I don't know him personally, and I don't know him theoretically. I not only don't know him, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this guy. Never using the name of Jesus, notice. Just this man, this being. And then he moves from the fire in verse 68 to the gateway. Got to get away from the light, get back in the shadows. The doorway around the compound. He will sacrifice warmth to remain hidden. And that little detail there, interesting, the the rooster crowed for the first time. 
Again, is this Peter putting this detail in the story because he remembers hearing the rooster crow once? Maybe it was a warning to him. Don't go down this path, Peter. Don't continue down the path that you're on to deny him. If it was, he quickly suppressed it because here comes this girl, but she's got more people with her. He's one of them. Don't y'all see this guy? He's one, he was with him. And again, he denied it. You see the tension building. And then some of the bystanders join in. Yeah, yeah. You're not from around here. You're a Galilean. Your dialect gives you away. You're from up north. You're not from the city. You're from around the sea. And then Peter's response in verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. What Peter says and does here is so offensive, it seems our English translators really don't want to give the full weight to what Peter says in his third denial. I don't usually like to get into the weeds of the original language and and make it seem as though the Bible is something you can only understand if you've been to seminary and you've had classes on all this. Get some good commentaries. You can read them. But sometimes it's important. The text says Peter swears, which doesn't mean he used profanity or a curse word. He swore an oath, a common way people in the first century would show an earnestness about their statement. May God do to me this if I am lying. May God judge me if I am lying. I don't know this man. But that's not the worst part of his denial. Before that, when Mark records that Peter invoked a curse on himself, the ESV is really a poor translation for what it says in the original language. That's not the language of the New Testament. The CSB or the NIV is a more accurate, Mark 14, 71. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. There's only one word in the Greek that's behind that word curse. Its, its root word is anathema. Like when Paul says in Galatians 1.8, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. Damned. There was a way to write that in the original Greek that someone was cursing himself. So the ESV says, he says, but that's not what's in the original Greek. In Acts 23, verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath and neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were cursing themselves until they killed Paul. We're holding ourselves accountable to this until we take Paul out. There's a, that's the same exact word as in Mark 14, 71. But it's not used the same way. It's not the, 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 the same verb ending. It's a different verb ending. The language of Mark 7, 14, 71, Peter is not cursing himself. He's cursing. But the verb he uses is what's called a transitive verb. There is an intransitive verb that has no direct object. So you can say someone laughed, he snored, he arrived. You don't have to have a direct object to use an intransitive verb. But a transitive verb requires a direct object. In other words, you can't say he threw or she grabbed. Because you're going to be like, he threw what? He grabbed what? Peter cursed who? Peter cursed what? It's a transitive verb. It requires a direct object, but it's not named. 
Peter's not cursing himself. That verb exists. It's not used. Peter is, in fact, cursing Jesus. Damning Jesus. Mark doesn't supply the direct object. It's unnamed, even though the language requires it. It's like, this is so bad. We don't want to be that explicit. But our readers know. What better way to finally and fully deny you know or follow or love this man than to damn him, to curse him? And one more time, Mark's famous word, immediately. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. And as Peter recounts in this story, the words of Jesus came back to him, and his only response was to fall into a heap and weep. Luke gives us a little bit more detail, Luke 22. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You can just imagine as the rooster crowed the second time, Jesus is upstairs on trial, and he's able to look down below, knowing what that meant. And he catches the eyes of Peter. And knowing Jesus as we have seen Jesus throughout the Gospels, knowing the character and nature of Jesus, you, you have to believe that when Peter looked into the eyes of the one that he just damned, he did not see condemnation, but he saw compassion. Feel the weight of this. Peter doesn't know the rest of the story. Like for a second, forget that you know the rest of the story. As far as Peter knew, this was it. There would be no more interaction with Jesus. This would be the last thing he would do. Is look in the eyes of the one that he would damn. And to Peter, it didn't matter that he was the first disciple to proclaim he is the Christ. All his past successes meant nothing in this moment. For Peter, there is only brokenness and tears. Like, frankly, don't we feel sometimes like that when we come face to face with our failures? We see ourselves at our worst. We face with our continued, repeated failures to live up to who Christ has called us to be. We repeatedly turn from Jesus to sin, revealing that maybe at times we do love sin more than we love Jesus. Or we're surrounded with friends and family who don't know Jesus. And even though when we come to this room with our lips and our hearts and our hands raised, we sing praises to this king, they still haven't heard of him from our lips. How do we recover when we come face to face with us at our worst? How do we live in the face of our failures? How do we see ourselves more And most importantly, how does God see us? So let's spend time thinking about that. Let's go back to verse 28. A verse Peter and the boys totally missed because of verse 27. 
Verse 27, Jesus says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Here is not only the promise of resurrection, but restoration. Zechariah 13 speaks of that. He speaks of the shepherd being struck. But later on in that chapter, he speaks of God gathering a renewed flock as the people of God. And then later in the Gospel of Mark, the resurrected Jesus speaking to the women women at the tomb had come to anoint his body with spices and they found the tomb open and empty. And Jesus, appearing as the gardener, he didn't allow them to recognize him. He said to them in Mark 16, 6 and 7, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter. I'll see you in Galilee. Just like I said. And then John records this beautiful scene in the last chapter. The disciples are out fishing. Jesus resurrected. Helping them catch some fish. And when he allowed them to catch this miraculous haul of fish. Peter. There's Jesus. If you know the story. He strips off his outer garment. He jumps in the water. He swims a couple of hundred yards. He doesn't. Wait for the boat to get to shore. He's got to be with him. And Jesus had cooked them breakfast and they were sitting around and eating. And Jesus had this conversation with Peter. Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's not a a hint of bravado or Peter's typical boisterous arrogance of the past in these statements. In some ways, Peter has been truly broken and humbled. Tim Keller put it like this. He says, if you ask a Christian with a superiority complex, are you a Christian? They will respond, how dare you ask me if I'm a Christian? If you ask someone with an inferiority complex, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, I'm trying the best I can. I'm not worthy. If you were to ask Peter, are you a Christian? He would say, yeah. Can you believe it? That he saved me. And not just saved me, but Call me to lead others. As Peter had denied Christ three times publicly, so Peter, to be the leader for the sake of the other disciples and himself, he would need to be affirmed publicly. 
And Jesus does this, asking him three times, do you love me? And Peter answering three times, you know I love you. Ultimately resigning himself to the sovereign, omniscient knowledge of Jesus. Jesus, you know all things. You know what happened that night. You know how I felt. You know how I felt after. You know where my heart is today. You know how I feel about you. You know I love you. As Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Christianity is amazing. The Bible is amazing. That this man, Peter, the lead apostle, like what other movement would have in their historical documents the very worst sin of their most prominent early leader? Put that into the account himself. Like imagine your worst moment recorded for the next 2,000 years for everyone to see. This would have been incredibly encouraging to the original audience of Mark in Rome facing persecution and the temptation to fail, to fall away, to see the devastation of denying you know Christ. But also to be encouraged that there is grace and forgiveness available. Our Baptist roots go back to two main strains of, of people the Dutch Anabaptists and the English Separatists. The Dutch Anabaptists were really the, the ones who, I'll just say this loosely, there's, it's more complicated as always, but they, they re- rediscovered believers' baptism, you could say. One of the prominent leaders was a man by the name of Balthasar Hubmeyer. Write that down for future kid names for you. He was considered the, the Simon Peter of their movement, a great theologian, great preacher. Ten years after Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation in 1517, uh, they saw 6,000 people baptized in 1526 to 1527. The Anabaptists were heavily persecuted for their embrace of believers' baptism. And on two different occasions, Balthasar was facing persecution. He denied he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He would be brought back to Jesus like Peter was, and he would write a work that's called the Short Apology, where he would say, O God, pardon me my weakness. It is good for me that you have humbled me. He would be arrested again later on his third occasion. He would not fail to identify himself with Christ. And as the flames engulfed him on March the 10th, 1528, he would cry out from the flames, Oh, my gracious God, grant me strength to endure my suffering. And bystanders would note that he seemed, as he prayed and sang, to have more joy than pain. Hudson Taylor gave his life to get the gospel into China, and he said this, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trained somebody to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. Peter had to get there, and for, them, for him, there was no way to get there apart from his failure in the courtyard. Now, the reality of our failures aren't the same. We're more than likely not going to be burned at the stake or be in a situation like Peter. But the reality of our failures are similar. Before us every day lays opportunities to obey and trust God and love Jesus and obey his commands, and we will 
or we won't. We will believe in faith or we won't believe out of fear. We will be set free from guilt and shame and do what is right and is good or we will indulge in sin because we are weighed down by our guilt and shame. We will live out the reality of our new identity in Christ or we will succumb to the pressure to be identified by our failures and our weaknesses. We will speak up boldly and humbly and give reason for the hope that we have or we will hide in silence while people around us continue down a path far from God. How do we deal with these daily failures? It's absolutely essential that we look and pay attention to where we're looking. Where do you fix your eyes when you fail? Who do you see? Often we see ourselves and our failures, and that's all we see. Or we see other people around us who we think haven't failed, and they do, but we have convinced ourselves that they are further along than us, and they're better than us. And so we just weigh ourselves down with more shame and more guilt. But look to Jesus. One more interesting detail about this story from Luke's account. In Luke 22, after the Passover meal, after the Lord's Supper, before Jesus predicts his failure, Jesus says this to, to Peter, Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you know that's exactly how Jesus sees you? Like none of us know if Satan is seeking permission to sift us as wheat. We're not privy to that information. Peter was. Job wasn't. But Jesus sees and knows exactly every place and every area where we will fail him for the rest of our lives. And yet, if you are alive in Christ, he can look at you and say with confidence, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Because if you are in Christ, you will turn again. You will come back to him. He will hunt you down. He will bring you back every time. Every time. Your failures won't be the thing that ultimately define you. And if you think this means that you should get cozy and comfortable with failure and sin, you're completely missing the point. Go ask Peter if it was no big deal what happened in the courtyard. Go ask him if he could have done it again, would he have done the same thing? Ask any Christian, how many of us look back at our failures and our sins and think, you know, I think I would do the same thing if I could. We are grateful that God can graciously work through our failures and sins and still accomplish his purposes. But if we could, we have a heart that desires to never say yes to sin. That's what marks you as a believer. You hate sin with increasing intensity and passion as you walk with Christ. But even though we're not cozy with failure, we also don't have to be defined by failure. Me and the bigs, that's our big, big kids. We have two big kids, two little kids. We call them the bigs. We have uh, watched over the last couple of months the Spider-Man trilogy, the 
original one with Tobey Maguire before Marvel kind of figured out what they were doing with Iron Man and they became good. So it's a lot of parts that you're like, this is pretty hokey. But uh, by the end of the third movie we, we, we watched yesterday, the main character wraps up the tension and the main theme of the three movies with this statement. Whatever comes our way, whatever battle rages inside of us, we always have a choice. It's the choices that make us who we are, and we can always choose to do what's right. Now that sounds great to our culture. Put it on a Hallmark card, put it on a bumper sticker, t-shirt, Afghan, whatever. The only problem is the gospel. The gospel says that apart from Christ, we will always choose the wrong thing. That even when we choose to do good, things that qualitatively our culture says are good. Feed the poor. Uh, pick up trash. Don't litter. Work a hard job. Love your family. You know, whatever. Qualitatively, our culture says those are good things. Apart from Christ, even when we do good things, they're motivated by self-glory. Not worshiping of God. So that even the good things people apart from Christ do become sin. Because it's not worship unto God, it's worship unto themselves. That's who we are apart from Christ. But one day, when God graciously opens our eyes to this reality that we are sinful to the core, and that Jesus alone is good and just and right and holy and blameless, and that Jesus the Good Shepherd was struck so we would not have to be struck, that Jesus, the good shepherd, was arrested even though he was sinless, so we would not have to be seized and arrested, that Jesus, the good shepherd, was abandoned by everyone so that we, the children of God, through Christ, would never be abandoned by the God who created the heavens and the earth, who will never leave us nor forsake us. When that becomes our reality, then we come to realize who we are in Christ. We come to realize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We come alive in Christ and realize we are given a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And these, this new identity is not brought about because we made it happen by our choices, but it's given to us through the work and person of Jesus through faith and trust in Him, that He also empowers and enables. So that at the end of our day, no one can take credit for the choices that they make. Everything that we've done is because God's done it in us and through us. Now that we have this new identity, now we can choose what is good and right and holy and just and righteous and pure and noble and glorifying to God. And when we fail, when we choose to sin, it doesn't change our identity because our identity is not based upon our choices. It's based upon God choosing us, God saving us, Christ being our salvation, us being hidden in Christ. It's based upon his choices, his performance, his righteousness. And that is secure. In Christ, you and I are seen by your Father in heaven as holy, blameless sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ, righteous, always dearly loved children of the Father. Your failures don't change that. What often happens when we fail is we begin to look at our failures and see our identity in our failures. We believe that our failures make us, define us, but Jesus sees you. 
He sees your failures. And because you are in Him, He can say with all the authority that called everything into existence, when you have turned, when you come back, go strengthen the brothers. Strengthen the family. Because He knows you will. Not because you have the power to fix yourself, but because He is at the right hand of the Father as your advocate and intercessor, and you are in Him, and He who began a good work in you will complete it, and you are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This I did not get when I was 18 years old in 1995. I knew I was saved by God's grace through faith, but I really thought from then on it was up to me. And I worked and worked and worked to be a good person. After about three years, I quit. I'm done with this. I'm not becoming good enough. And even though I was still years away from a more robust grasp of the gospel, here's what I did learn that year and in that season of failing. I learned that I am His. And He came after me. And He brought me back. And reinvigorated a passion and love for him that I could not have created in myself. And so no matter where you are this morning, your Father in Heaven is coming after you to bring you back. To give you life if you've never come alive truly in Christ, if you've just been religious. Or to bring you back again. Come sit at the table again. Feast at the table again. You're always welcome. This is always your home. It's interesting that those were the questions that Jesus asked Peter by the sea after breakfast. Not, what have you done to overcome your incredible failure in the courtyard? But he asked them, do you love me? Do you love me? It's always the truest mark of a disciple of Jesus. Do you love him? So this morning, do you love Jesus? Can you see past your failures and see that he did not fail you? He never failed you. He will never fail you. And He will never let you go. If you are His, you are His forever. Fix your eyes on Him, not your failures. And let your heart once again be captivated by Christ. Father, we are grateful that this is who you are. And the same power, the same person that brought Peter back 2,000 years ago is bringing us back right now, today. So come, Lord Jesus, and do it in us. However far our hearts have strayed in this room, by the power of Christ and his gospel, bring us back. Restore us once again. Fill us with your spirit and then send us out to strengthen the brothers to be the church. Father, I pray for anyone here who's never come alive in Christ, true. They've only been religious or irreligious. I pray that today you would save them. For the glory of the name of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to...